This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Ethnographic Marginalia. So given that this is our first episode, we talked about starting out by by telling you a little bit about the podcast and our website uh, and how this project began. Um, So let me ask you, Sneha, what was the original thought behind starting a, a website and podcast about ethnography? Yeah, thanks uh, for asking me this, Alex. And it gives me a chance to go back to the time that you and I first met at the Sociology of Development Conference in 2019 in a pre-COVID time where we could actually hang out at a bar after attending presentations all morning and uh, chat about all things sociology. And immediately, uh, um, Alex and I started talking about our respective fieldwork experiences And we had all of these really interesting stories from the field that clearly we were very excited about. And uh, we also simultaneously lamented the fact that um, while writing up uh, research articles or even short essays around our respective research projects, we would lose the beauty and the multiplicity of all of these little stories that make fieldwork what it is. Um, But Alex and I kept up our ritualistic exchange of field stories uh, thanks to WhatsApp's very convenient voice note feature. So we would send each other very long, like at times 16 minute long uh, voice messages detailing one particular encounter that really shaped the way we were thinking about a specific question, a research question in the field. So uh, at some point, energized by the fact that we now had like an archive of field notes as voice messages on our WhatsApp, we thought it might be fun to maybe open the conversation up and get more people involved in this like discussion around methods, in the exchange of field notes, in like writing short um, ethnographic essays that pack a punch. And um, we were looking for a place to publish these on and we couldn't really find one, at least in sociology the discipline that both of us belong to. So we thought, okay, well, let's just start a blog and um, ask people to send whatever they want to to this blog. It could be just ethnographic scraps. Um, at one point, we played with the idea of naming this blog b- naming this blog Methodological Appendicitis. Uh, but um, jokes apart, that's how this blog came about. And um, I had just recently honed my website making skills and um, decided to give it a shot. And that is the long and short story behind ethnographic marginalia and how it, how it came to be. So yeah. Alex, one, um, 
Well, I was going to say one thing I remember from those those early exchanges when we, you know, before we had the idea for the website is is almost therapeutic in a way. Um, you know, we both. Uh, I was earlier on in in my PhD program, um, but had done about six months of field work. I just had all these stories, and it was it was both really interesting to hear uh, your stories from more field work experience, and therapeutic for, for me to have someone who was willing to listen to, I don't know if I ever reached 16 minutes, but uh, someone who was willing to <laughs> and, and interested in listening to, you know, all, all these experiences that I had had. And, and what she said is absolutely true. Many of these, you know, crazy, fascinating, sad, frustrating, enjoyable experiences that, that there's just not a space for in, in sociology. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there is a space for it, perhaps sometimes in a book manuscript, but even then, uh, some of the experiences that make fieldwork what it is, a contingent, messy, adventurous, those sort of get uh, polished and become, you know, just bite-sized, uh, uh, wise, reflective, um, but very uniform sorts of experiences. And... I have been thinking a lot about methods and methodology, especially um, in the process of writing up my dissertation. And it was interesting to observe what I was doing in terms of selectively highlighting certain experiences and downplaying the others. And, well, I do want to give a shout out to one of the most interesting books that I've read in recent times to do with fieldwork methods, which is Harassed by Patricia Richards and Rebecca Hansen. And this book, um, I think, was, is very dear to my heart because it was writing precisely about these questions to do with where does the body go um, af- after fieldwork, right? You have a lot of these experiences that have to do with your body and like with your, with, which are just messy experiences, but they kind of are this affective surplus that don't end up shaping uh, the argument of your book, but, I mean, they do shape it. It's just that we don't talk about them shaping the argument of the book or the journal article or um, so on and so forth. So, yeah, we just thought it would be a nice place then to to house all of these various experiences um, and house various reflections on methodology. And, Alex, I do want to ask you to speak a little bit about um, photographs because I know that you are an avid photographer and you take a lot of pictures while you're in the field. I wish I had um, had the sense to take a really good camera with me into fieldwork, but I didn't because I was so wedded to this conventional way of doing ethnography, which is so much more to do with like writing and taking notes that I almost, and I did have a camera, but I didn't take like really good pictures. You know, I just took like very functional photographs to use as evidence, but I know that you have a cinematographic eye. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what motivated you to take the visual very seriously in um, or like think about photo essays as a mode of understanding the social world? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to I want to disagree with you. Uh, I've, I've seen some of your fieldwork photos that are that are excellent. Um, but yeah, it, I at the time that, that we met um, a little more than a year ago, I had spent two three month periods uh, here in the village that uh that I'm in now where I do field work in, in Colombia. And I just took some photos with my phone. Um, and some of it was, this is a really beautiful place. Some of it was to help me remember things. 
Um, and then at a certain point, uh, I decided that I really wanted to take photography seriously as a part of ethnography. And I think that that fits in really well with, you know, what you were saying, what, what gets lost in a lot of the articles we try to publish. Um, but I think, you know, as a way of conveying information, you know, at its, at its best, ethnography is something that takes the reader into a new and different social world. And, you know, the visual aspect of that, seeing what it's like to be on, on the streets of Hyderabad or in the mountains of Colombia. Um, I guess we'll talk about our own research a little bit more later, but um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's something that, that really adds a richness to, you know, whatever the theoretical argument may be. So that was something I just started to, to really enjoy um, and, and something we want to push for in the website, is photo essays. Yeah, I was also curious to know, does, uh, does your committee encourage the inclusion of photographs in your dissertation chapters? Like, how is that going for you? Uh, so that's that's an interesting question. I just shared an article with uh, with a committee member of mine, and she, I had previously sent her photos. I was sending photos to committee members and various people as a, like fieldwork updates, rather than writing things out. Um, so she had seen some photos, and and she encouraged me to include photos in in this new article. Um, though we talked about it a little bit. And she was curious why I wasn't doing that, knowing that I've, that I've really gotten into photography um, and that just that certain journals discourage it. That's the advice you, you hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, this is just a, a plug-in for the website again, but if there are pictures that you all want, want to feature somewhere, consider sending it to us at www.ethnomarginalia.com and we would be more than happy to publish like a series of photos as a photo essay or a lone a lone photograph that you are just very attached to but has no place in your own work for whatever reason um and you know in a weird way that's precisely the point of the website and i keep joking i don't mean to like say that it's just for scraps of ethnography but really we're hoping that this becomes a space where you feel free to send stuff that maybe just didn't make it um to your dissertation for whatever reason and we would be more than happy to feature it and carry it um because yeah so many so many field notes um are written with so much care and attention but sometimes they just somehow don't add to an argument that's being made and it's, but they're still very interesting to read and they're very informative and insightful. And that is basically what I used to do to Alex, to send him things that I didn't know what to do with. And, you know, it'd be nice to have a larger community to to have that sort of like an engagement and conversation with. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, the other thing I would add is, um, you know, thinking about what you said and, and thinking about I've read you know, a lot of things that, that you've written, parts parts of your dissertation. And one thing that I really appreciate is that you're a wonderful writer and you put a lot of care into making your experiences uh, in the field or your descriptions uh, entertaining, evocative, uh, involving um, the five senses, what did things look like, and in a way that really transports the reader into that world. Um, 
and I, I think of I think of our name, which I think was was your idea, and I, I think it's a, a great name for the for the website, Ethnographic Marginalia, um, and the way that sort of all of that wonderful writing gets pushed to the margins, and that we're not necessarily evaluated uh, for that. We're not necessarily evaluated for being able to tell a good story through ethnography, which is actually one of the things that drew me to ethnography in the first place. Is enjoying reading these books that took me to, you know, wherever it was that the author was, was analyzing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, thanks for also talking about the name. I actually think it was you who came up with the name, but thanks for giving me the credit. I'll take it. Uh, but there's a, we're also going for like a little bit of a word play with the word marginalia. Like on the one hand, of course, it refers to all the things that get pushed to the margins, but we also want to reiterate our commitment and love for ethnography as a methodological approach, especially at a time where in disciplines like sociology and political science, but more broadly in academic um, circles, there seems to be a fetishism of, of you know, of, of computational methods, of quantitative work and at times, ethnography gets pushed to the sidelines. Uh, I know that this is certainly the case in sociology. There has been a lot of conversation around ethnographic validity, um, of um, authenticity of data. There are calls to make field notes completely transparent and publicly accessible. And of course, those make me think of ethical conundrums in doing so. But more importantly, I think ideologically, it signifies a certain pushing out of ethnography as an important tool in understanding social dynamics, which I think is, I mean, of course, I think it's dangerous. And um, in a way, this website is also to push back on this normative agenda of making ethnography a sort of marginalized methodological approach within the discipline of sociology. But um, yeah, that's that's kind of the other um, meaning of marginalia in the sense that I was thinking about it. Let, let me ask you, Sneha, you, uh, you finished your PhD just a few months ago. So first of all, congratulations. Yeah. Um, what, Thank you. What would, uh, you're welcome. What would having a space like this have meant to you as you were doing field work and as you were slaving away, banging away at the keys of your, of your computer, uh, writing that dissertation? Yeah, um, well... I mean, I would have loved to send a bunch of field notes that I was writing with a lot of, again, like you said, I love writing and conveying the sense of a place that I'm, I've been immersed in for a while now, which is the city of Hyderabad and like specifically certain traffic police stations in the city of Hyderabad. And I would have just loved to send um, some of my short essays and field notes Um it would have offered me a sense of community also to be able to like go to a website and then read other people's writing around ethnography to see what field notes look like, what they are, how long sometimes they are, or just to get a sense of how people make arguments based on ethnographic data. And that's kind of what we hope uh, will happen on the website with uh, ethnographic essays. So short 3000 word essays that draw on a particular corpus of ethnographic data that you have um, 
but you know, you don't want to write an entire journal article around this issue, but there's something interesting going on. Like I would have loved to see models of that. So in my head, when we were thinking about this website, I was thinking of that grad student who's kind of, you know, sitting in the field, a bit isolated from academy as is, because you're away doing um, ethnographic fieldwork for months um, on end. And there is a certain kind of isolation that, that, that seeps in. And a website like this, I hope, will, will give, give a certain sense of solidarity <laughs> and practical help in uh, finding models of writing to, to think through, to critique, but also to engage with and emulate in some way. Absolutely, yeah. And just to clarify, um, essays that people submit don't have to reach 3,000 words. They can, they can be less. We were just thinking of that as sort of a loose upper limit. Um, and we're also interested in, in works on, on methodology, uh, reflections on methodology, um, and photos, my new passion. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Alex, I was just thinking, should we, I mean, we've hinted, towards um, our respective fieldwork interests a little bit tangentially in each of our answers. But should we just dive in and talk a little bit about what we work on and how, like, what our research interests are, how we went about doing research? Absolutely. Um... So let me ask you then, what is your research about and how did you get started with this topic? So I am I'm currently, I'm recording from Briseño, Colombia, uh, which is uh, a small village in, in the mountains of northern Colombia. Um, and it's a village that's a key area for the, the Colombian peace process, um, which is based on a peace agreement signed between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, a guerrilla group, an agreement that was signed about toward the end of 2016. Uh, and my research is on how this village is living that transition. Um, this is a village that for years, for decades, had armed group presence. Uh, the local economy was based on coca, which is the, the plant that's used to produce cocaine. Um, and now through the peace process, there's uh, a coca substitution program uh, that has completely transformed the local economy, um, not necessarily for the better. It eliminated coca, but there there hasn't been a, a legal economy that's really uh, that's really been developed to replace it. Um, and also, and I think linked to the pacification of the village through the peace process is uh, a major. The Colombia's largest hydroelectric dam is being built in this village. A project that started before the peace process, but um, it's all sort of part of a, a broader, a broader process through which this village is being taken off out of the margins to to be a, a focus of state power. Um, so I I try to understand what this means to to locals here. Um, and I think you asked me how I got started. Uh, I was when I started my PhD or before starting my PhD, I was um, living in Colombia. In, in an historic time when, when this peace agreement was being negotiated. Um, I was living in the city of Medellin, and I just got really interested in, in Colombian politics, and sort of this idea of a, a, a rural transition. Um, it took me a long time to, 
to get to this topic, but, but it was something that always interested me. Um, so let me ask you, uh, Sneha, you mentioned the streets of Hyderabad. Uh, what do you do on the streets of Hyderabad and, and how did you come to that topic? <laughs> yeah, um, it's a running joke in my family that my fieldwork is basically me standing at traffic signals, but that makes sense because my fieldwork was on the regulation of driving habits in the city of Hyderabad. And so, I mean, I don't think it's any secret that there is like a discursive trope of a typical Indian driver. And that trope is often used to evoke like some kind of tragic comic um, you know, representation of India as like a chaotic sort of country. Uh, but yeah, the figure of the typical Indian driver has come uh, to mean a, a certain kind of dysfunctional uh, governance in India where the state isn't able to elicit rule obedience by drivers. And I got interested in this topic because the city that I am most familiar with in India, Hyderabad, I saw I saw like huge holdings and all kinds of efforts towards regulating driving habits, and this is coming at a time when Hyderabad is trying to like brand itself as a world class city and catapult itself into the league of global cities, like whatever that means, right? Um, so I began to notice that traffic police and urban planners were becoming more proactive in the regulation of driving habits. So I did a multi-sided ethnographic project, spent time with law enforcement officials on the ground to see how policies and practices around the regulation of driving habits get actualized in everyday practice. But on the other hand, I also spent time with um, drivers of various social positions, uh, doing interviews and observations with them to understand how they perceive these initiatives and whether or not uh, driving behavior actually changes um, and the kinds of relationships people have to like ideas around risk, safety and pleasure. I also learned to drive as part of this ethnography and got a driver's license and, um, you know, just to get a sense, again, like how people navigate not just the streets, but also the mazes of governmental bureaucracy um, in in India. And, yeah, I'm currently, I mean, I defended my dissertation, as you, as you mentioned earlier, and I'm currently sort of working towards making this into a more coherent <laughs> book manuscript. And um, it's quite a daunting task as I'm learning every day. So one of the things that I loved about your project, having read a, a couple chapters from your dissertation, um, is sort of this idea of uh, studying traffic, studying potholes, studying driver's license tests, which which is a great story uh, that I hope you share at some point on this podcast. Uh, sort of these as spaces where people actually are experiencing the state, you know, completely in the U.S. we just had a an election, right? And that's often what um, political sociologists study in terms of the state, is mm-hmm. elections or social movements. And uh, you, you made a very persuasive argument that actually we should also be studying potholes as, as one example. I'm wondering, <laughs> is, that, is that an idea that you had when you began? Is, what was your original thought in studying traffic? What was your original research design? Uh, traffic and driving, and how did that change when you when you entered the field? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's I think one of those public secrets around ethnography is that nothing ever remains the same from when you defend your dissertation proposal to when you actually go into the field. Or 
uh, and things change all the time. Ethnography is such a contingent process and there are just so many ifs and buts when you start out. And yeah, when I, I had a very straightforward plan, I was going to, I got permission to do field work amongst traffic police officers on the ground, which was actually easy peasy and not much change on that front because it was much easier to like study an organization um, and go up and down the hierarchy levels without, without many issues. Um, there were some incidents that I can bring up later that, uh, yeah. Uh, but the potholes issue was something that came up actually when I came back from the field, I spent a lot of time talking to drivers about their experiences on the road. I, I took lots and lots of field notes every time I took um, a ride in a car or a or an auto rickshaw or a cab or a bus and I hadn't really thought through a lot of my field notes um, I came back to Chicago and I was looking at um, all of my scribbles and I began to notice how much emphasis people place on a sensory engagement with the state so I began then to notice that I had collected a bunch of newspaper articles around road safety and road crashes and I hadn't actually ever noticed that people were constantly talking about what they call pothole deaths and they were verbalizing the culpability of the state in making roads unsafe by pointing to pothole deaths and pothole deaths are when two-wheeler riders actually fall off their bikes and sustain head injuries because of potholes. Now the argument is by the police is often that they are not wearing helmets which is why they're sustaining head injuries Um, but like my interlocutors actually attributed some kind of weird agency to the pothole itself. They were like, pothole is causing deaths was the kind of language that was often used around these road accidents. Um, So I began to think a little more critically around how people encounter the state. And then it became all too clear in all of my interview transcripts and all my notes that in fact, people were evaluating the state's capacity to care um, or be culpable in producing unsafety on an everyday basis through their experience of potholes and bumpy roads or like unregulated speed breakers, um, which were also causing a lot of accidents and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, it's funny because I think my my research plan, so to speak, remained fairly intact, but I didn't draw the kinds of conclusions I thought I would be drawing. I It was actually... I wrote a very different dissertation from the one that I had planned to write. And it was only because I did what I think any good ethnographer should do, which is listen to the ethnographic data, not to the theoretical questions that you go out to the field with. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's that's fascinating. And and one of the reasons that, you know, it's it's been really interesting to hear about your research is just the the parallels with, with my own which, I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. about this, but absolutely in, in rural Colombia, roads are an extremely important element of how people experience the state or even, 
seek to conjure the state, and it's often people here who are who are making their own roads um, and trying to call on the local government to to help um, as well. Yeah, and I think both of us owe um, our sort of um, theoretical and methodological leaning in in a sense to political anthropology that has uh, often talked about um, the state being actualized in everyday life being an important way to study its effects and its and the fantasies and imaginations that uh, that pervail and reproduce the state in everyday life, right? And I think sociology doesn't do it as much, but we have certainly we we owe a great deal to the anthropologists who have paved the way in thinking about the state in this innovative and um, honestly more accurate manner. Uh, but Alex, what about you? Did you have some kind of, you know, did your research design change uh, before and after your dissertation proposal defense or any other kind of like, you know, graduate school milestone? Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, and my journey is maybe a little different because I, very early on in graduate school, um, I visited I visited Briseño after a semester of, of graduate school. In fact, looking for where I wanted to do research, and have been really fortunate that it's that it's been a great place for me to do research. Um, so back then, I was just sort of interested generally in in a transition. What I, I think it's falsely called a post-conflict transition because Colombia is not post-conflict, um, but uh, a post-peace process transition. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think you know it was. I think it was helpful to be open to sort of all different kinds of theoretical questions that could come from that. Um, but yeah, then after after spending two different summers here. Um, you know, I became sort of interested in the relationship between uh, the peace process and and mega projects. Uh, there being here uh, Colombia's largest hydroelectric dam, and also the potential for a, a gold mine, a multinational gold mine, mm-hmm. um, which would be owned by a Chinese company, and that was something that under guerrilla rule would could not happen. Um, so the peace process mm-hmm. was enabling that. Um, so that was sort of my main interest in defending the dissertation proposal. Um, and then now that I've been here after doing that for another 11 months or so, uh, what I realized was that there's, there are so many interesting things going on and that this, you know, whether it's peace process or, or there's just a broader transition going on and uh, sort of the, the hydroelectric dam, the roads, um, changes in, in the election and local clientelist practices, the economy, mm-hmm. um, the COCA substitution program uh, that I think I mentioned is a state-sponsored program to, to help COCA farmers transition to other goods. You know, I sort of started thinking that to, to really do that justice, I needed to find uh, an idea that linked all those things together. So now I've sort of pivoted to thinking mm-hmm. about state formation um, but I, I, to be honest, I, I think it's, I, I'm open and, and it's useful to be open to, to further changes. Like you said, leaving the field, going back and looking at, at field notes and trying to write them up. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask yeah. you, or do you want to respond to that? Oh, 
no, I was just thinking that I think um, distance is always really helpful in sometimes seeing patterns that one just misses when one is in the trenches, right? And this is, of course, like nothing that it's nothing new that I'm saying, but I think it's it, it's off, it's good to repeat it because uh, oftentimes grad students tend to worry that they don't have an argument uh, when they're actually collecting data in the field. And I know I felt it. I was like, oh my God, I just, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I have nothing to say, but then you kind of come back and uh, you slow down and you get some perspective with distance. And that perspective is always really, really helpful. But I didn't want to ask you, Alex, um, you know, you were like talking about all of this. And I wondered, like, since March, I'm pretty sure that your fieldwork has been disrupted due to COVID, right? Like, I know that a lot of people in the field were either stranded or had to come back or, you know, like, there was some kind of like really significant pivot that they had to do in terms of continuing their research. How did that look like for you? Because I'm I'm post-field. I mean, I'm still thinking through a lot of the material that I've collected and I'm doing like some kind of like, you know, analysis with newspaper articles and all of that. But um, yeah, I was curious how you have been dealing with the pandemic contingencies. Yeah, so I think I've been really fortunate. Um, the first four months or so of the pandemic, uh, I was I was staying with friends. Actually, I had a friend come and visit me and we ended up uh, from Chile and we ended up quarantined on mm-hmm. a, a really isolated farm. Um, we were working on, on filming a documentary here, in fact, and, and we were there and, and he left and I sort of stayed. So I spent mm-hmm. um, I spent four months on isolated farms, uh, <laughs> coffee farms, chocolate farms, with all this great fresh produce and learning. Uh, you know, if it, that, I wouldn't have done that if the pandemic hadn't happened. And I learned so much about uh, rural lifestyles, uh, economies, yeah. everything. Um, so that was through basically the end of. July, beginning of August, more or less. Um, and then since then, I've been here in, in my apartment and you know, the pandemic has, has come to this village. Um, I'm trying not to have contact with too many people. Um, mm-hmm. And the, it's, it's odd, I don't, I don't have that distance of you know, going back, the traditional going back to, to the US, to my university. Um, but I have mm-hmm. had a lot of space to, to think, to write, to read, and that has been really helpful uh, as, I've, as I've tried to, to come up with, um, you know, the, the idea of what, what my dissertation will actually be. Um, and the other thing is, even, even though I've been very closed up in my apartment, I commented, I told you this story already, but even sort of in everyday experiences, I went to, I went to buy meat, like... Uh, mm-hmm. A week or two ago, um, from from my butcher, um, and he's a, he's an older gentleman, and he just somewhat randomly started telling me all these stories about how the municipality, uh, the village became legally a municipality, which was only about forty years ago. Um, mm-hmm. How how that was an effort of local people, how they got electricity, how they got a sewer system. And he had been at the forefront of all of these efforts, sort of traveling back and forth. And, you know, I was pretty much just looking for, for meat for lunch. Um, so that, that, came <laughs> out of the, that came out of the blue and was an amazing experience. But other than that, I've been 
I've I've taken my field work way way down. How how about you? I mean, I know you said you are post field, but but I also know that you've been thinking a lot about uh, ways of doing ethnography digitally. Um, what what is your experience with COVID and research been? Um. Yeah, I wanted to go back to the field um, in August and September. And my plan was to do follow-up interviews with people to see how um, a certain recent change in uh, traffic fines has impacted the way people are thinking about the state, but also thinking about, you know, obeying certain traffic um, rules that are being enforced actively. And I had all these thoughts, of course. Um, I can't, I well, I couldn't go back um, in August and September. It was interesting for my own work to see how even in the midst of a pandemic, like the WhatsApp groups that I was a part of, people were praising the efforts of the government in making full use of a lockdown that was in India uh, in May and uh, April and May that the city state in Hyderabad, sorry, the city government in Hyderabad laid proper roads and everyone was praising those um, efforts. So it was interesting that even while talking about the pandemic, people are talking about roads um, as if they were the first and most important priority, at least of the WhatsApp group that I'm a part of. Uh, I've been cataloging a lot of memes to do with driving and traffic in India. I want to write a chapter on humor and um, and political imaginaries around uh, discipline and indiscipline in India. And so I'm finding recourse to the digital world actually quite eye-opening. I'm learning a lot of new things about like the ethics of, you know, like how memes just don't have an author. So the ethics of citing someone who has produced the meme is actually a very complicated process because, uh, yeah, as a product, they're just authorless and the, their wide circulation is actually um, their authorial authority i um yeah so you know i'm th- thinking about some of these things and um i am also very interested in writing a chapter on popular representations of traffic in india so i'm currently watching and re-watching two films that came out um in the telugu uh, two telugu films that came out when i was in the field and both of them have one of them is actually very explicitly all about road crashes that it's like a horror a genre film that um, is a cautionary tale around people breaking traffic rules. And another one has at its heart um, a charismatic political leader who comes to power and one of the first things he does is impose very heavy-handed fines around traffic rule breaking. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm analyzing these kinds of popular culture artifacts with much more care than I would have if I think I were back in the field. I would have just used these films and memes as um, supporting documents rather than central cultural artifacts in their own right uh, worthy of analysis. So that's one thing that I've been um, having a lot of conversations with with sociologists, um, sociology faculty at UChicago too. And I keep saying that I think it's time to sort of take the cultural artifact or the popular representation of many of our projects very seriously, especially because we just don't have this kind of like immediate access and we tend to romanticize immediate access anyway. So maybe it's time to rethink these um, these anxieties around what is authentic ethnographic data. Um, yeah, so that's, that's actually where I'm at. Let, let me ask you, because I'm sure our listeners would love to hear an example of how uh, people are imagining the state through humor or, or memes. 
Yeah, I mean, look, okay, one of my favorite memes um, that came out in the wake of a very steep increase in traffic fines enacted by a legislative change last year was that uh, this person tweeted, and this is actually quite offensive, so I'm really sorry that that the people in India have such uh, reductive and stereotypical views of the world. But all right, so the government um, increased traffic fines, or at least brought about an amendment in the law that increased traffic fines very drastically. And one of the tweets that followed immediately after was, how can the government impose Scandinavia level fines with African level infrastructure in place? You know, so here you see this articulation of one, a developmental imaginary where Africa is way back, India is somewhere in the middle, and Scandinavia is, of course, like way forward. But the argument implicit in that tweet was, of course, that the government is, it's not fair to impose fines that don't, that are not appropriate for the level, for the infrastructure in the country. And you saw lots of similar like jokes around this. Like there was one uh, picture of a woman uh, doing like a yoga pose, wearing a helmet, but in the middle of a huge pothole in the middle of the road, you know? So it was just like the stark uh, joke and it went viral and everybody was laughing about it. There were lots of Bollywood related memes um, to do with, you know, traffic cops uh, represented as just enjoying all of this cash, like rolling around on a bed full of cash while citizens were begging uh, on the streets outside of the bed. Like, you know, all of these like sorts of critiques of the of the legal amendment through the Register of Humor, which I found quite um, interesting. That's that's fascinating. And, and I wonder, as you were sort of pointing <laughs> to, if... Uh, if this pandemic will provide a, a space or push ethnographers to to use more of, you know, whether it's social media um, or movies, novels, materials from from popular culture as as data, mm-hmm. rather than just you know the, the classic ethnographic participant observation in in mm-hmm. space. Um, so. Yeah. I was I was wondering. You've already shared a lot, um, but you know we talked about this this website and this podcast as a as a space to share experiences that are that are often cut from our work. So you recently wrote right. and defended your dissertation. I was wondering if you could share mm-hmm. with us uh, one story that fell by the wayside that you regret not being able to share. Yeah, uh, this was actually a story that I wanted to write about. Again, like, I just felt like writing about it would be distracting or would make one of my informants appear like villainous or something. And I didn't want any of those repercussions. So I just left it out because misrepresentation is always easier than omission. But basically, here's what happened. Uh, I had been spending a lot of time with one traffic police, um, um, how do you call it, street level officer. And I mean, okay, his, we call them the traffic police constable, basically. It's like, and I, I, yeah, the Indian police system is different from the US and I can't get into that. But anyway, so this is like someone who had been a police officer for about 30 years and he was very kind to me, I think was the reason that I could attend a lot of events and gave me a lot of his time. So I'm very grateful for all of that, of course. But at one point, we were um, doing an interview and 
he just sort of picked up my hand in the middle of a sentence and just sort of like kissed it, you know. And I was very taken aback. So I was like, what are you doing? And then he was like, oh, I was just saying hi in America style. And I I was very struck by all of the implications of that exchange. And I did think that it it mattered to what happened after because I stopped uh, meeting him. I felt a little uncomfortable with putting myself in that position. And I thought a lot about uh, what I might, you know, what the implications of letting go of this informant might be. And it did shape the fact that I couldn't get access to like the IT cell in the, in the traffic police department that he used to, um, let me like, you know, accompany him whenever he was going for any work there. So it, it, it didn't matter to what happened, but I didn't talk about it again because I just felt like it was, um, yeah, I didn't have a place in the arguments that I was making. I did plan to write like a methodological appendix and put one of these instances in as an indication of how the field was and how my gender um, and the fact that I was from like the U.S., uh, mattered and shaped the kinds of conversations and interactions I was having. But I didn't end up actually doing the methodological appendix because I just felt like we always relegate a lot of very important things to the appendix, which actually nobody ends up reading. So when I'm rewriting all of this for my book, I plan to bring and think through these moments alongside the arguments that I'm making. And this to me is factors into this chapter that I'm working on where I talk about um, talk about women uh, negotiating different kinds of risk in the city and uh, like it's a chapter on gender and urban spaces so I think this will probably come up in that chapter but yeah I, I just don't want to have a methods appendix in my book <laughs> all of the methodological dilemmas have to be there as data not as um an ethnographic leftover that if somebody wants to read can read, you know. So that's 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 what I did, and that's what I regret doing with my dissertation, not actually putting it in. And um, yeah, I'm going to be bolder this time, this time around when I write. I uh, yeah, um, I absolutely think that you should. And um, one of the things that I've appreciated about learning about your your field work, and also you. You mentioned the book Harassed, which I read because of your, your recommendation. Um, is It certainly, and that story really gives me, uh, really pushes me to reflect on, you know, we do research in very different spaces, but we're also very different people. Um, so thinking about, you know, what that means uh, to, to my research as a white man, not just in terms of like what you said as the methodological appendix or methodology section, where I sort of nod as we traditionally do to positionality um, and to my privilege here, but also, you know, what that actually means as, a, as an act of, of data production, uh, I think is, is an interesting question um, and absolutely should be you know, part of the data rather than relegated to the end. Yeah. Do you have any such experience that you have wondered about including in your dissertation and have decided not to perhaps this trip to the butcher that became food for thought sorry i just had to crack that joke i had been holding it in for far too long i yeah but <laughs> i actually remember bad ethnography puns being featured in, in early uh, early
leave us uh, between <laughs> us as well. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I have an experience that, that speaks very well to that and also to, um, to my positionality and, and privilege as a researcher um, that uh, I, about a, a year and a half ago, uh, I was here for the, you know, the academic summer May to August 2019, mm-hmm. and the village was in the middle of elections, mayoral elections. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the candidates was actually a friend of mine, and, and I thought, wow, you know, this is really interesting, hang out with a mayoral campaign. I was interested in studying the state. I didn't know what that would mean for my research, but I was pretty sure it wouldn't be boring. Um, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually have, have written about it and... Um, and have an article coming out in Qualitative Sociology about it. Uh, so this is a story that I, I, in fact, cut from that article um, to that mm-hmm. point. Um, so as part of doing that research, um, I realized mm-hmm. pretty quickly that, uh, so first it was it was a, someone who I considered a friend running and I was supportive, but then I also realized that there were, there were two campaigns, only, only two candidates. I sort of realized that I had mm-hmm. friends and important contacts on the other side um, and <laughs> ended up wanting to stay neutral. Um, but mm-hmm. early on, the, the candidate, uh, who was my friend, who ended up winning, uh, wanted me to speak at his rallies. Um, and, you know, I did once, and then I, I sort of started saying that I wasn't comfortable doing that. Um, but I think, you know, it's... Understanding why he wanted me, someone who is not, you know, from the village, who many people didn't know to speak, uh, absolutely has to do with my privilege as a white American researcher from outside. Uh, he would even nod to me when referring to, like, literally point to me when talking about how his administration was going to get international collaboration, um, mm-hmm. things like that. So. That was something that came up that was a little, I felt a little sketchy about, um, and I think I didn't handle very well. Uh, But then Mm -hmm. what I started doing was following around the other campaign as well to get a more more nuanced view (laughs) or to to sort of to understand how everything worked from from both sides. Um, And with the other campaign, uh, I was at a campaign event, um, which are great parties. If you ever get a chance to, to hang out at a campaign rally in rural Colombia for a mayoral election, I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> so I was there and uh, the campaign manager, who was someone I was very friendly with, um, for the second candidate, you know, they were taking pictures and he said, oh, can we take a picture? And I said, sure. In fact, I had been taking pictures and um, so they took a picture of me with the candidate and with the campaign manager. Um, and I thought nothing mm-hmm. of it. And I actually went, this was close to when I had to go back to, to the U.S. for the, to start the, the fall semester at the University of Texas. Um, so I went back and, mm-hmm. I, got, and I got a message um, from a friend uh, here in the village. And the message was a screen cap of this picture of me with the mayor and the campaign mm-hmm. manager. And what he said, uh, somewhat vulgarly, was that you were urinated on. Like, they, they marked territory on you. Oh, my God. Basically. 
Oh, um, no. So I, I went and I, I found that they had made this campaign video with a great song that had actually been recorded. It was about the candidate. Um, and they threw this video. Wow. There was there was some video and then photos. And it was the mayor with people who were supporting him, and uh, the, the candidate with people who were supporting him. And they had put this photo that was like implying my support. Um, and Whoa, yeah, I actually think that that I don't know for sure, but I think that was sort of one thing me wanting to be neutral, and then that that damaged a little bit my relationship with the 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 first candidate, the one I had originally followed around, and, and who actually ended up winning, um, because I sort of allowed myself to be. Uh, without meaning to, to be sort of used by the other campaign. Um, yeah, I think comparing, yeah. comparing that story to what you said is, it's sort of a, an interesting, uh, it's just sort of the opposite case of how, you know, our identities influenced what access we could have and, and how people related to mm-hmm. us in the field. Absolutely. And I think they're very different um, experiences, but each of them shaped the way we were able to approach our informants and conduct research in very significant ways. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's like, that's a bit of a pickle, Alex. I'm glad that, you know, you're, you're fine now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, no, and and that's, and that's kind of the point. I was never actually in danger. I just may have offended someone important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, this has been, great um, chatting with you and uh, telling I guess announcing our existence to the to the world (laughs) or to the few listeners we have today (laughs) but well I just wanted to ask is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about uh, about the website something that you're really excited about I mean I think that I want to thank you for sharing as well I think this is a really interesting conversation that I hope we can continue with other ethnographers. Um, the website is ethnomarginalia.com. Um, and I think we'll both be contributing, but we're really hoping that this will, this will open a community um, for, for our wonderful colleagues to submit and, and have uh, this kind of and even more interesting conversations. Yeah, and uh, just to remind everyone, we are a special series on the New Books Network and we will be releasing episodes periodically. So do keep an eye out and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you all. Uh, Feel free to browse the website and just send us an email. Um, All of the information is on the website under the tab submissions. Thank you so much for listening in and have a wonderful day wherever you're at.